Welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast focused on current events, faith, and peacemaking from a Mennonite perspective. I'm Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network. And uh, Hannah, it's good to see you. I've got a little bit of bad news for you tonight. This is uh, the revolution is here. Raleigh, North Carolina is putting its mark on the Mount Rushmore of Mennonite places. And I know you've lived in Newton and in Elkhart and Goshen sort of living the life there. But tonight, Raleigh, North Carolina is going to take over. How do you feel about that? You know what? That's all right. I can be supportive. We had our Southern California stint, too. So I feel like if the Mennonite uh, circles can expand, that's only good for all of us. So I'm okay being outnumbered. We've got an all-star cast today. This is going to be great. That's um, right. Melissa Floor Bixler is here from Raleigh Mennonite Church. My pastor, your pastor, you just don't know it. You read her stuff and she's your pastor. So, uh, <laughs> Melissa, good to see you. Thanks for taking time tonight. Thanks, Jason. And Joy Shaver, Joy, what's your position with the church? Because I don't even know when I go there sometimes. <laughs> uh, I am Raleigh Mennonite's pastoral resident. So it means that I work for the church about 20 hours a week. I have a seminary degree, um, and Raleigh's been my home church for about four years now. Well, we could talk about a lot of things. I know tonight we really wanted to talk about a, a resource that the, the Peace and Justice Support Network is, is happy to put out and, and start to get the word out on. But it's a resource that came from Melissa and Joy and your work and your thought and your writing. And it's about bystander intervention. And, and even as we've been talking about it sort of, you know, below the radar in ways, it's really resonating with people in big ways. People hear about this and they want to know more. So that's what we want to do in this podcast is really kind of hit the basics of what is bystander intervention and maybe talk a little bit about the resource that was created behind it. Uh, so let's just jump in right there. Joy, maybe I'll start with you. You know, from that 90,000 foot level, what is bystander intervention? Bystander intervention is a set of tools that people can use to de-escalate situations where they see harassment um, happening. A lot of the times we see harassment or we hear stories about harassment and we wish we could step in and do something helpful but it's really hard to know what is helpful. So bystander intervention is uh, a way to be able to do that well and de-escalate the situation and bring peace and wholeness as best we can in the moment. So before you all developed this curriculum, you actually tested this out and did some training at Raleigh Mennonite. Is that right? Yeah, we started thinking about this right after the election. The Southern Poverty Law Center had reported 900 bias-related incidents within 10 days of the election of Donald Trump. And I think we were seeing this happening in our community. Uh, we were seeing this happening on the news and other places. And at the same time, you all may remember that the safety pin thing was happening, or people remember yes. that safety pin. To, that lasted for a hot minute, but... Right, yes. I know it feels like a really long time ago, but... But one of the criticisms that came out of that was that people were putting safety pins on themselves without having done the proper training to be able to know how actually to advocate for people when they saw harassment taking place publicly. So that sort of led to this journey of trying to find bystander intervention training just for myself. I wanted to be a good advocate and when I saw things happening in public and to know how to do that well. And eventually found this organization called Hollaback NYC, which is a group that was founded by a woman of color who, out of her thesis, created this organization to address street harassment of women and LGBTQ people in New York City. 
And they started offering this expanded version of bystander intervention training online. And so Joy and I did that class, Mm -hmm. that training online and found it really helpful and trusted the ideology behind this organization and, and their experience um, and from there, we just we found out that those were principles that were used in a lot of different places for bystander intervention, and and we took them. And our church had similar questions: How do we do this? Same kind of questions we were asking. So we took this to a class for our church and for our local community, and then were approached by Jason about expanding it to a resource from the Mennonite Church. And I wonder if you can say more about how people uh, in your congregation in the community responded to the training or what the kind of key questions that they came with were as they sought this out. There were a lot of like the questions that I hear when I just talk about this, like, oh, that sounds great, but how do I actually do that? A lot of women were like, I have been harassed and I wanted someone to step in, but I feel incapable of doing so when I see something. And a lot of men were just really wanting to be able to offer this. And some had witnessed harassment and hadn't known what to do and expressed, like, I really want to be able to do this. And then throughout the congregation, there was a lot of, can you please offer this again? Because I couldn't come this time. So people seem to be really excited about this. And Melissa, you talked a little bit about uh, just the timeline of this, how this came about. But how would you place this bystander intervention, this concept? um, Why is it important now? I mean, I guess, yeah, you talked a little bit about the the number of, of of incidents has, has risen, but uh, can you put it maybe even a, in a bigger context for us, maybe as peacemakers, why is this an important skill or tool for us to have in our toolbox in this time where we find ourselves? Yeah, you know, when we did this training, it was important for us not to approach it as a set of rules, but more as a disposition of life. And um, I think a lot of us have, especially those of us who find ourselves at the center of power, uh, go around not thinking about the ways that other people are affected publicly by just the way that their bodies act and are and have to be in public spaces um, where they don't have power, where they're, they feel vulnerable. I don't think I know very many women who haven't experienced sexual harassment of some kind, but this increasing experience, I think being more attentive to the fact that we are responsible for one another, not just in the way that we do anti-oppression work in sort of big ways, but but to be attentive to one another um, in public space. And I think that's a challenge for us because it's it's easier just to say, that's not really my issue. That's not my problem. I can just, you know, someone else will take care of that or I'm really sorry that happened, but I just don't know what to do. So expanding our peace witness into, into this everydayness of, of attentiveness towards one another is a challenge and, and I think a gift that we can offer one another and, and our communities. And that's interesting to me too, because it's almost like this, uh, this concept bridges a divide in some sense, because I, I think, you know, just to talk in broad strokes, folks who may have a more, lean more of a conservative theology, even if they classify themselves as peacemakers, very much concerned on sort of interpersonal peacemaking. Like that's sort of, that's kind of where it starts and where it ends in some ways. And I think it's fair to say, you know, folks who might have a more progressive view, a lot of times they're, they're focused more on systems and structures and things like that. But I guess from what I heard you saying, like the bystander intervention, it's got the very personal touch, but that personal touch is actually addressing larger systemic things. I mean, I don't know, does that sound reasonable? Yeah, I think it, it doesn't, that does make sense because I think it also 
another aspect to this, and again, we, where we don't talk about it as, as a set of rules, is because everybody enters into bystander training from their own position of the way that their bodies interact with the world. So, you know, I, I, you know, I think an overarching principle that we take, we take into bystander training, like any anti-oppression work, is that you can't be someone's savior, um, that you have to be attentive to the way that where are you being helpful or where do you think you can rescue someone where they don't need to be rescued? It's, it, it, it is that place of intersection for what does it mean to think that you're helping somebody, helping a woman in a dark alleyway when your body may seem like a threat to a woman. And so always having to constantly do that work about our own self-recognition of how we come into these situations and how can we how can we do the least amount of harm and be the most present to somebody else? So I have seen these small cards floating around. PGSN is giving these cards away that mention um, some tools or principles for bystander intervention. It's the five D's. And Joy, I wonder if you'd, you know, you don't have to go in depth with each of them, but say a little bit about what each of those five D's represents for bystander intervention. Sure. Um, so the first D is direct, and that means that you directly respond to the person that is harassing someone else. And this can be a little scary, but it can be also a very powerful tool. The second one is distract, which means that you are not actually going up to the person that is harassing someone. You are going up to the person that is being harassed and talking to them about something, anything other than what is happening around them with the idea that if the person that is harassing someone is not getting any attention, that they'll leave and go away and that you'll stay with the person that's been harassed and be able to support them. The third D is delegate. And so that one really recognizes that we are community. It recognizes that disposition that we are committed to everybody. It is just what it sounds like. You bring others into helping you diffuse the situation. That could be your friends that are with you and you say, hey, I'm not the person. My body is not the one that should be confronting the harasser. Um, can you do that? Or you could also go to the person who has power and authority in the space you're in. So if you're in like a grocery store, for instance, you can go and get the manager and say, hey, this thing is happening. Can you please come? So that they can respond to the incident of harassment and diffuse the situation. The fourth D is delay. And this one recognizes that not all situations you're going to be able to get to the person when harassment is happening or you might be able to get to them, but you might have done that internal work and decided that your body is not the one that should step into the situation for a myriad of reasons, which we talk a little bit more about in the full bystander intervention uh, resource. And so you don't respond in the moment. Instead, you hang out until the incident has passed and you check in with the person who has been harassed and say, hey, I saw that and it wasn't okay and I'm so sorry you went through that. Is there anything that I can do to help? You might offer to walk that person to a safe place. You might offer to report uh, the incident to the police with them. It's really helpful if they do want to uh, report it to the police to have a witness there that will back up their story because otherwise it becomes a he said, she said kind of thing. 
And then the fifth one is the one that we really want you to be the most careful with. It's document. We all seen the videos and pictures of harassment that have gone around uh, social media. And if you've watched them like I have, you've been horrified by them. And they do help to raise awareness when they go around social media. But they can also be really damaging and hurtful if they are posted without um, the person that's been harassed consent. It can actually feel like a deepening of the harassment because now everybody is looking. So if you do decide that you're going to document this, we really want you to go up to the person afterwards like you would in delay and say, hey, I saw that. It was awful. I did document it. I would like to give you the evidence so that you can decide what to do with it and to ask for their phone number or for their email address and to send it to them and then delete it off your phone because you should not be the one that decides what is going to happen with that evidence. That needs to be the person who's been harassed. You know, th those five Ds, it's in contemporary language and we're talking about cell phones and whatnot, but, but they're based in principles that are that go back and that really tie into our theology. So I know you both did a lot of work in thinking through the connections between these five Ds and, and Jesus's life even. Uh, were there any, any aha moments you had as you were studying these and thinking about any connections that it might have to, to Scripture and to the life of Jesus? Yeah, I think one of the secular version of this training and then sort of said, well, what does this have to do with with our faith and are there ways that we can sort of see our own sort of theological convictions coming through. And one of the interesting places as Joy and I were, were talking through that was uh, the story in John eight, where uh, there's a woman who has been accused of a, a crime, a religious crime, and she is um, being harassed by, by this group of men who want to stone her. And Jesus comes into the scene and he distracts them. He starts writing with his finger uh, in the dirt on the ground. And they, they, get, they start focusing on him and, sort of, and get, get more focused on him and, and his interaction with, with her than they are to what they're doing, which is, which is trying to hurt this woman. And it's, there's this sort of diffusing of the situation, and it allows space to directly confront what's going on. And so which is interesting for us as we went through scripture to think about some of these places where we could see, see these as effective means of, of being for people who are in places uh, of harm, who are people who are made vulnerable by their social situation and are looking for help. Yeah, I will just add to that. When Melissa and I were talking about the John 8 passage, it's the first time Jesus' actions made sense to me. I'd always wondered why in the world he bent down and wrote in the dirt and then seeing it through this lens I was like oh he actually had a plan he wasn't just doing something random um, and so that was really interesting to me to take the secular lens and look at the Bible and being able to understand it more deeply and in a way that I wouldn't have seen without it there's a lot of good information there and, and I like what you said you know these aren't rules that they're more principles um, but, but they do have some nuance to them that's why we're excited about this curriculum that uh, that Melissa and Joy co-authored for us for Peace and Justice Support Network. It's a seven, I think it's seven weeks. It's a Sunday school curriculum where you can dive into individually each one of these Ds uh, as well as some introduction. And, and there's you know, great information there, how this sort of fits in, in, in a biblical sense. Uh, but you can really start to think in a group, okay, what does this mean then? 
okay, well, what are the ramifications of, of, of doing this D as opposed to that D? So we really encourage you there to, to take these skills, but, you know, really work it out with, uh, you know, with your, with your community there, what they mean. And I'll, I'll tell you an experience that I've had with these, uh, with this information so far is people having some questions about specifically one of the D's, the direct aspect. And so a lot of people have said, why do you even have direct as one of these D's? Because I think they're, they're reading it as confrontation. And they, the, the message I've heard is they can't imagine any scenario where you would directly confront someone who is harassing someone else, that, that these other tactics could all be used. And so why even have that one there? It seems like it's a, it could be misused by someone and lead to more harm than good. And so I, I've, I've uh, had several inquiries on this. And so that's why I'm, I'm glad, another reason I'm glad to have you all on here. I don't know, uh, Melissa or Joy, you might want to comment on the, the utility and, and why the direct D is, is an important one? Yeah, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, we do think of these as tools or tactics and that there's probably tactics that aren't listed on here that, that other communities have come up with. But I think part of this is, uh, you know, just getting back to some questions about what are we, where are places that we're willing to individually put ourselves in in a place of discomfort. I do think there is something powerful in telling someone um, in, a, in a public venue that what you're saying is racist or what you're saying is sexist, that there is a power to that type of, of naming of something that's happening in one of our spaces. And to we give some guidance on that, that when you want to speak and you, you feel like you have, uh, you're in a safe place and that um, you would be granting some sort of wholeness to the situation, um, which I think confrontation can contribute to wholeness. You say it in a calm voice, looking at the person. And after you say um, your simple phrase, you don't get into an argument with the person, you simply walk away and move on to one of these other tactics. One of the questions I think we're asking ourselves as the church right now is as pacifists in the church or um, who's pacifism. And so I think part of the, some of these questions have to do with being challenged by new tactics in movements that we're still grappling with as Mennonites. And it's going to take some time. And one of the reasons that we appreciated doing this with our church and also seeing people do this in other churches is that you have to discern this within your communities and you have to work this out together and figure out what this looks like. So I do think there are times where that direct tactic is useful, uh, where we have to actually name evil that's happening uh, in our midst. But one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is that it seems like, you know, there are levels and layers to the types of harassment that happen. And I think sometimes we can see things and automatically understand like, yes, this is a problem, but there are whole layers of things that fall into sort of gray areas. And I, what I'm finding is that often what happens, especially in church settings, is some interest in kind of avoiding some of those smaller things, but that sort of build this foundation for bigger things to happen. Is this making sense? I mean, this feels a little random, but I guess how would you say that this training might help equip people to address both those smaller level kind of micro aggressions as well as the larger level harassment type things that we see? I think uh, one of the ways is that we're getting people to talk about harassment and often 
those of us who are in positions of power are blind to the fact that things are microaggressions. We may be doing them not knowing that we are doing harm. And so if you are as a church talking about harassment, there is space to name those things and to have those difficult conversations and to process those and learn from each other. I think also if you're having a mindset where everybody is your community and everybody is your responsibility, then you're going to be asking those questions. Like, you look upset. Tell me about that. Like, do you want to tell me about that? Maybe not. Being able to even just name, like, you look upset after that interaction. Like, can I do something for you? Um, Lessens the effect of harassment. If you're committing to bystander intervention, you're committing to noticing the people around you and to stepping in and trying to create wholeness. You're going to be more aware of the people's body language around you. Um, You're going to be more aware of reactions to things that you might not think of as harassment. You know, also what you're pointing to, Hannah, is we just have to do a better job in the Mennonite church of being comfortable moving towards conflict. And instead of just always... And, and so I think I hear some anxiety in, you know, what does it mean to speak directly <laughs> to one another is also a reflection of sort of our, our own anxieties about speaking directly to one another in lots of areas of life. And so we let these things simmer underneath instead of mm-hmm. just bringing them out. And yeah, so I would, I would like to think, you know, that this would, it would help us in our church life and in our work life. I know that one of the questions that came up when we did this at our church a lot, that it isn't because bystander training has to do with public harassment, but there, there were a lot of questions, I think, and someone else may want to write this resource. You know, what do you do when your colleague tells a, a racist joke or, or there's, you're noticing like a very subtle sexist microaggression in your family and what's the best way to help that person who's doing that to see what they're doing and and to move back back towards wholeness for the community and to bring some sort of recognition to the person who's been harmed by that and again those are that's outside the scope of this curriculum but maybe that's something that will come up as people are in these conversations talking about what does it mean for us to have a disposition of life of of being attentive to one another well melissa and joy i think you've, you've done a great service to the church with this curriculum uh, you know, and you can find it at pjsn.org, and it's, it's totally free. We, we just want people to do it and engage with it and engage in this important work. Uh, a real gift to the church there. Thanks for joining us tonight. Joy was playing Hurt uh, you know, with 110 temperature or whatever, so she, she stayed in the game. 102. Well, 102. Don't, don't freak the people out here. <laughs> 110 is like deadly. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> we should be doing some intervention and sending you someplace else if that was in fact the case. <laughs> Good point. Hey, th- thanks again, and uh, we will catch up with you. I mean, maybe we can do this again and, and talk more about some of these other issues we raised, but good luck in your, your work at Raleigh Mennonite Church and, and everything else, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks for being on Peace Lab. Thanks for having us. And don't forget, friends, you can access the Bystander Intervention Curriculum at pjsn.org. Thanks for joining us today. Peace Lab is a production of the Peace and Justice Support Network, the Mennonite Inc. magazine and website, and Mennonite Mission Network.